Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Normative humanism. Now, this is where happiness is defined by pleasure minus pain. Okay, so that mixed in with the fulfillment that has been in philosophy for the last few hundred years that began with Rene Descartes that says, I think, therefore I am. When you have those two things that come together, we can have an antagonistic view on anything that comes against and resists our true self coming to the forefront. This is most often found in the resistance of life and in pain and those that might embody something that we would deem as being resistant. Oscar Wilde once said that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. See, we read this, and we probably immediately, as followers of Jesus, disagree with it. But let's change maybe some of the known understandings of Oscar Wilde and probably some of the implications that he was referring to. And let's, instead of sex and and freedom of self, exchange it with ease and with comfort. Amazon Prime. I'm a disciple. I'll acknowledge I'm a spokesperson of, of the two-day shipping. But maybe something a little bit more serious, cancel, uh, um, cancel culture. The doctrine and the decline of debate on college campuses. Contraceptives and the installment of the pill. All of these things, to a level and to a degree, are instilled with the idea of pleasure minus pain. The removal of facing things that might hinder your ultimate happiness. Meng Tzu, a fourth century um, voice in BCE once said, when heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, and put him to poverty, place obstacles in the path of his deeds, so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent. Who loves that? You love a little little, little sinew, a little sinew resistance. You love a little responsibility, a little bit of pain, hardening of his nature. This is in many ways not the norm, but more often the exception to the rule. So what do we do? What do we do when we have a lacking of an understanding of the process and the path towards growth, and we live in a culture that reinforces that lacking of understanding? Well, a lot of times we find ourselves diving into culturally and individually into coping mechanisms. This is a talk also on praise. So just giving a little bit of groundwork for where we are and why praise might be a little bit uh, culturally in the church um, uncomfortable for us. In 2018, Forbes magazine put out an article that said seven seven unhealthy coping mechanisms that are secretly wrecking havoc on your psyche. How encouraging. 
How encouraging. Gosh, especially since we've probably all dived into some of these. Let's go ahead and take a look at uh, the first one here. There's a little bit of a long list here. Avoiding anything that isn't positive. People that insist that they cannot tolerate being around anyone who isn't wholly or consistently positive aren't as emotionally healthy as they may seem. No one here has ever done that before. Second, catastrophizing. Catastrophizing. I failed this quiz, therefore I will fail this class, meaning I will fail school and I'll never get a job. Ouch. Isolating. This is more than the healthy dose of me time. This is the deprivation of the fundamental resilience needed to coexist with different people without being impacted by every single one of them so significantly that aloneness becomes the preferred way of being. Fourth, downward social comparison. People who have low self-esteem will often seek out others they believe are somehow doing worse than them to make themselves feel better by contrast. I'm struggling with something. Gosh, let me just find somebody who is sucking wind right now in life, and let me just get around them a little bit better, to, a little bit more to make myself feel a little bit better. I have definitely never done that. Reminiscing or romanticizing the past, allowing your nostalgia to divert the attention from the key elements that caused you to make a shift in a situation in your life. He wasn't that bad of a boyfriend. That job wasn't as unbearable. That town, whatever it may be, our nostalgia takes over our remembrance. Almost there, folks. Very encouraging. Overacting to small issues. People who explode over small, seemingly innocuous triggers are often harboring deep wells of unexpressed feelings. Their mistake is in thinking that maybe literally yelling over spilled milk will resolve the discord. That letting out their emotions all the time will over time resolve the deep wounds that are within them. Let me just be clear. It is healthy to like have a good diagnosis of yourself and to you know, within the parameters of, of health and safety, like, let out sometimes when you're feeling stuff. But this is something different. This is literally the cable for the, for the piano. Nalu, the cable wasn't plugged in. That isn't necessarily the most helpful and healthy way of going about it. Also, it wasn't plugged in. It was great. Or it was plugged in, so you're great. It was awesome. Worrying as a means of self-defense. This is the last one. This is the longest one. People who overthink and end up worrying too much are often trying to shield themselves from something they fear. The trick is that fear is usually not an event or a circumstance, but rather it's a feeling. Because they feel so out of control in the present moment and don't know how to handle that feeling now, they project a desire for control onto the imagined future circumstances. Worrying is your mind's way of preparing for something down the line. We have all at some point in our lives and interacted with one of these mechanisms. How could we not? How could we not? We're, we're, we're in a culture where we see this at a large scale and often we find ourselves with, the, with a deficient spiritual resilience towards the things that we're faced with. So we revert to things. There's no shame in this. There's, there's freedom in step one, acknowledgement. How many people know if you have something in your life that you're trying to overcome, the last thing you want to do is to lie to yourself and say you actually don't struggle with it. The first step to freedom is to say, oh, you know what? This is actually something I should be aware of, actually something I should invite the Lord into and actually begin a process of overcoming it. 
But this isn't just like contain these mechanisms to, you know, Forbes magazine and the culture. This is actually something that I see also resembled in our spiritual lives. So I took the liberty to try to like kind of put these into like as large of buckets as I could um, that maybe just like encompass maybe a bunch of smaller uh, coping mechanisms into maybe three larger ones. So these are uh, sensual overloading, spiritual bypassing, and subliminal, subliminal victimization. So let's go with the first one real quick. Sensual overloading. This is not sensual as in sexual. This is sensual as in your senses. So this is a spirit of overeating experiences. This is a resistance to actually standing before the Father in his presence. And because of a fear of maybe a, a false paradigm of who he is and how he views you, you just overload yourself with podcasts and worship music. But you're actually not engaging with any of the material because the engagement, the, the transformation doesn't come from the content. It comes from actually having intimacy with the Father. And so this can be something that, that is very, especially in a content-driven world, can be so pervasive and can fill so many of our lives right now. I know in 2020, I definitely dipped in my foot a little bit into the well of sensual overloading, just, just being hedonistic with my senses, even within the church. Spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing. Uh, I, I would say that this is probably easiest coined as like, when things are worth grieving, we don't approach Jesus as the man of sorrows. We just come and we just talk about his victory, his victory, his victory. Now, there is victory, and that is the reality that everything is under his feet. But he's also a man of sorrows. He's also one that comes near to the brokenhearted. But when that theology is not within our theology, and we just always revert to God is good all the time, all the time God is good, and there is zero. We're bypassing. Think about an interstate. We were, this morning we were driving, and we came up to a, to a crash. Okay, And it would be so easy to just follow good old Google, on down the road and go around the crash. But that actually wouldn't negate the fact that the crash still existed. Someone's going to have to come to the crash. Someone's going to have to clean up the debris. Somebody's going to have to help if anyone's injured. They're going to have to remove that. That's not, me leaving it is not actually going to change the circumstance that I was faced with. So that can be spiritual bypassing. Lastly, subliminal victimization. Think about the word subliminal. A message that is intently in the foundation of whatever is happening, you watch a movie, you hear a song, there's a subliminal message. It's something that isn't at the forefront, but it's definitely something that you come away with receiving. Subliminal victimization. We can live our lives in communal victory on Sundays. We can live our lives thinking about the promises of God in having head knowledge, but the 18-inch journey down to our heart and the reality of living as sons and daughters, there can be a divide. There can be a disconnect. We can come back to the moment where we still have this deep, orphaned spirit. So with that positive, encouraging moment, let's look at what it looks like to fall into any three of these spiritual mechanisms of coping and look at it, how it deals with the trial. Next slide, please. Trial. Trial. You just fill that in with whatever you're, you know, you've gone through in your life or you're going through. Next, sensual overloading. Awesome, I have this trial, now I'm just going to go put on that sweet upper room worship, and I'm just going to have that playing in the background. And I'm actually not going to take a moment to actually say, Lord, there's something that is going on, and I am going to surround my mind and my body and myself with worship. I'm going to fill my home with this. But instead of doing that, we just say, you know what, I'm just going to put that on, I'm just going to sub subdue this right here, and then afterwards, I'm probably just going to listen to an old John Mark Comer podcast, and it's just, it's going to be, there's victory, let's go, let's go, let's go. So then after that, we have a false 
facade of our spiritual health. We think we're doing awesome, but slowly and surely there's spiritual decay. And the harder the trial, the more we just grab on to things versus grabbing on to a person, and the more we become susceptible and we lose our actual diagnosis of where we are spiritually. Next, thank you for being so proactive. Uh, spiritual bypassing. Have a trial. Again, all right, God is good all the time. Nothing, nothing within me can, n- n- nothing can shake this rock. Next, after that, we can have an unrealized view of breakthrough and the process. Breakthrough, yes, sometimes can happen immediately. And also sometimes breakthrough can take time. You know, I think about when Jesus heals man, he says, what's easier, to heal his leg, or what else? What does he say? Forgive his sins. God's not just always just trying to do things. He's not Amazon Prime just trying to fill in an order. He actually wants intimacy within the relationship between you and him. And so when we have this spiritual bypassing, we're just always just focusing on certain things. We're actually missing the thing that maybe God is trying to do. That he's trying to work all things out for the good of those who love him. God is not the instiller of evil, but he is great enough to say, hey, there's something here. Okay, let me work in this and let me see because there is a deepening in relationship that I am longing for. And this will be a, a avenue for that depth in relationship. Lastly, subliminal victimization. Trial. I live with this deep sense of orphan spirit. What can that lead to? Is there one more? Oh, there we go. Perpetual orphaned spirit. We just never actually get into the root. Just always feeling this disconnect. You always come into the presence of God, and there's always this shame. There's this deep sense of I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I have to earn it. I have to strive for it. I have to do something. I have to be holy enough. There isn't a resting within the trial of, and I am loved by a father. We become the older brother saying, oh, I got to just work for God, not knowing that the entire time you could have walked into the house into your father's presence. Again, guys, no shame. We have all gone through this. We've all lived through this. Our churches, some even ministries have been built at times. There have been movements that have built, been built off of these paradigms. So what do we do? It's going back into scripture, seeing how people actually deal with trials, and then disconnecting ourselves with what is culturally normative and rooting ourselves in something that is countercultural. And this is where we go to our passage. So if you're here this morning, as we get ready to go into it, I just want to just encourage you that I actually believe that there is breakthrough in this place this morning. We're going to talk through a lot. We're going to look at some quotes. We're going to look at some diagrams and things like that. But I actually, at the end of the day, the talk is not the place of encounter. Okay? I hope that, you, that something is helpful, but that it leads to an encounter with God. And the living God longs to actually encounter you. He doesn't want to just be one of the coping mechanisms. He wants to be the answer to the struggle that you might be facing. There's a quote by uh, Richard Freeman who was a physicist and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And he says, you can recognize truth by its beauty and simplicity. I'll say that one more time. You can recognize truth by its beauty and simplicity. This is why in Jeremiah 29, 13, we can have a ton of hope because it says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. 
We don't have to have all the answers. We can be in the midst of trial. We can be in the midst of any of these three spiritual mechanisms and say, God, I am I am recalibrating myself to seeking you. I recognize that this is my default. I recognize this is what I run to. I am making a stand right here, right now, a dissident to my own self, and I'm running to you wholeheartedly. And we will find him. He rewards those that diligently seek him. So let's go and look at our scripture reference. Let's go and let's glean from the past. Let's glean from what a king thousands of years ago did when he faced a trial. So 2 Chronicles 22, some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is, is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazazan Tamar. So Jehoshaphat, if you're not unfamiliar with him, he was one of the kings of Judah. Okay, he was actually one of the more godly kings in Judah's history. He's the son of Asa, but it's really interesting. In the beginning of his reign, it says that Jehoshaphat did as his father David. This is just a side note. David was not Jehoshaphat's father. But sometimes you have to reach into redemptive history to grab onto something to say, this is, I've seen that this is what I've been, I've been given my inheritance, but I'm going to reach onto something that's even further beyond. I'm going to reach to my spiritual inheritance by somebody who embodied this in the past, and I'm going to grab on, and I'm going to ask for a double portion. I'm going to flow in that. I think that is something that is so, that is so uh, important. Don't let the current cultural climate of Christianity hinder you from thinking that this is all that Christianity has, that this is, that this is all that a relationship with God is, that this is, that this is the, the, the encompassing fulfillment of Scripture itself. There are people in history we can grab onto their cloaks and we can say, no, you know what? I am not letting go. I want to taste and see what this person saw. God, just like in Habakkuk 3, 2, we have heard and seen of your deeds. We are asking for a renewal in our time. Do them in our time again. And so Jehoshaphat found himself in a situation that he couldn't escape. Okay, so he is about to be attacked by two, uh, by two varying armies, armies coming together and attacking Judah. He cannot escape this. He can't outwit it. He can't outrun it. He can't outmaneuver it. He is in what I believe the correct scientific terminology is, a pickle. That was a bad joke, but you know what? Got some laughs. There we go. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire in of the Lord. Jehoshaphat resolved, inquire, to seek after God. Jehoshaphat resolved in his mind to seek after God. Before the attack came, he resolved to seek after God. Can we be honest? Sometimes we don't seek God in our trials when, when, when things, before things happen, because we actually haven't seen the full scope of the calamity that's about to happen. So we stand there and we say, you know what, I'm just going to let this play out versus like, dear God, this could ruin things in my life. I'm seeking, I'm resolving myself to seek after you even before, even before the situation takes place in my life. I'm going to seek you, God. I've heard a rumor. That's all I need. I don't actually need to see the reality. I just need to hear a rumor and I'm going to seek after you, God. See, praise is something that we can do from a distance. There's this, there's this misunderstanding of praise and worship being the same thing. Okay? Praise is something that can be done from a distance. It can be done when you feel ashamed. 
It can be done when you feel unworthy, when you haven't read your Bible, when you don't even remember the last time that you've prayed. Praise does not require intimacy to be done. Worship is a byproduct of intimacy. Praise can be given when intimacy is lacking because praise is a one-way dialogue between you and God. It's a one-way thing. You are giving God praise. It's a one-way monologue from your lips to God's ears. It's a defiance against the circumstance that your heart, your mind, your emotions may be telling you. So you might feel ashamed. You might be saying that you're unworthy because you haven't read your Bible. Maybe you're new to faith and you haven't even read a, a scripture at all. Maybe you don't even know the first book of the Bible. That's okay. You don't have to to give God praise. All that he is looking for is a willing and a contrite spirit. Psalm 42, 11 says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise him, my Savior and my God. See, in this passage right here, the psalmist is disobeying the commands that his emotions are trying to give him. Emotions want to say, you're downcast, go into whatever coping mechanism was happening in David's time. He is rebelling against what those emotions are saying, and he's saying, no. I'm actually going to go and I'm going to praise God. And in the praising of God, there's going to be a reorientation within my mind where I'm going to say he is my savior and my God. The reality of God sometimes gets reaffirmed by us speaking to our souls, just as we did this morning when we were singing um, um, goodness of God. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves because we have forgotten the reality of who God is. It's a reorientation back to the correctful order of the heavenly hierarchy where God is in control, where God is the true savior, where he is king of kings, where he is Lord of lords. Let's continue. So he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. This is, this is uh, Jehoshaphat. He proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek him from, to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, he came from every town in Judah to seek him. This is really interesting because the first step in the communal practice of praise for the people of Judah is that they came together and they repented. So they didn't just jump in, grab a guitar, grab a fiddle, grab whatever it is, and just start giving God praise. They actually began by saying, oh, there's something here. There is there is a, in the reorientation of who God truly is, there's also a reorientation of, oh, I'm a sinful man. Isaiah does the same thing. When he has the vision of God, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. The clearer God becomes, the more humble we become with our depravity and the need that we have for God's supremacy in our lives. And so they come together as a communal practice of repentance. I think part of the reason why we don't see a lot of moves of God is because we really harbor a deep sense of pride in our communities personally. And I think the first step to seeing the manifestation of God more in the Western secularized culture is the church of Jesus being more dependent on him and being, having a clear understanding of who we are and how much we actually need God. Everyone came together to seek God. Everyone says that there were men, there were women, there were children that came together. That's why I love that this place is filled with men and women and children, because it's going to take every single one of us coming together, realizing, say, Lord, in humility, I recognize that I need you, God. We need you to move 
in our time. We need you. We cannot do it. It's not going to be because of our great slides, our great worship music. It's not going to be because of any kind of like articulation of a sermon, whatever it is. We actually just need the power of God to come and to fill the spaces that we walk in. That's why I love when Ashley, she's teaching our children before they can even walk or talk how to have hearts of praise and humility. It will take every man, every woman, every child united around the common goal of seeking God and the presence of God. Verse 5 and 6, then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors. Dr. Tony Evans said, in, in regards to this passage, he said, start off praising God, start off praising God's person before you ask for his power. Mm-hmm. Yes, one more time. Start off praising God's person before you ask for his power. This is what Jehoshaphat does. He gets everybody together. They start repenting. Everybody has this heart, a contrite heart of humility. And then he begins by saying, Lord, come and break through. He starts by saying, Lord, the God of our ancestors. He begins to just reaffirm who God is to God. He's not only filling the atmosphere with the, with the truth of who God is, but he's filling his mind with faithfulness towards God because he knows that God is faithful, regardless of what the circumstance may turn out to be. We have to remind ourselves God is faithful, even if the circumstance doesn't turn out how we envision it to. It's important to identify who God is to you. That's going to change season to season. There are going to be seasons where he is going to be, a, his, he is going to be your provider. Remember that. When I, when I was walking in my faith in college, my relationship with Jesus, the way that he interacted with me, the way that I would remind myself of his goodness is different now as I'm a father of three. So we have to remember Jesus is, his, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes his, his deliverance, who he is and how we remember it, that will shift. We have to remind ourselves of the story of redemption that God has done in human history and he's doing in our personal lives. You are the not, are you not the God who is in heaven? This is what Jehoshaphat continues to say. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So he's continuing to talk about who God is. Are you not the God that is in heaven? That you rule over all the kingdoms and nations. Power and might are in your hand, reminding himself, the people that he is leading. We want to be a church that reminds ourselves, that reminds this community when we face troubles, because we will, and when we do, we remind ourselves of who God is, of who God has been. We, re- we reach, like I said, reach back into redemptive history, and we say, Lord, you've done this before, you'll do it again. But one thing that's really, that stands out to me that I think is really, really beautiful and important is he acknowledges we don't know what to do but our eyes are fixed on you. Praise has to have a sense of humility. It has to have that contrite, like we're saying, that contrite spirit, that humbleness that says, Lord, I am praising you even though I don't know exactly what to do. I don't know the next step. All, my answer right now, it's not naive, 
but it is praise right now. It is praise. My first step into engaging, overcoming this trial is to praise you for who you are. And it's interesting because that stance unlocks two things. The praise that Jehoshaphat leads his people in with acknowledging God's presence, his who he is, and then with the humility of heart, it unlocks the prophetic and it unlocks God's power. Verse 14 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came to Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite, and descendant of Asaph. As he stood in the assembly, he said, Listen, king. So this is a prophet, a prophet that comes in, and he says, Listen, king Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. So he's about to give a word to Jehoshaphat to share with all of his people. Now, this is a different word. So we, you know this in the Bible. There are two, two different Greek words for the word. 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 Logos and rhema. Quickly, if these are new terms to you, logos is the word that John uses in his first chapter. He says the word is with God and the word was God. It's the utterance of Jesus in scripture. Rhema, rhema is the spirit-inspired word that you need for a specific moment and encounter. And so he goes and he's about to give a rhema word from the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, the rhema word, the inspired word for Jehoshaphat in that moment. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God. When we reorient ourselves, our ears begin to unlock to what God is trying to say and trying to do. I have found myself so often being like, I don't know what to do. I don't feel like I hear God. And that's really because I'm sitting there with a prideful spirit. I haven't, I haven't reminded myself of who God is. I'm trying to do it in my own strength. I'm probably reaching into some victimization or some, or, or some bypassing. And I'm actually not sitting there with hum, humility of a heart, reminding myself of who God is, and then allowing that to unlock my ears to hear the voice of God with the encouragement and the word that he's trying to give me right then and right there. So Jehazelel continues, you will not have to fight this battle. I would love to not have to fight a lot of the things that I come up against. I'm, I'm sure that you're probably, even my, even my biggest eights in the room, I'm sure that you would love, that's Enneagram joke. Uh, eight is the challenger. My wife is an eight, and I love her, and I love it for it. I love her for her challengingness. But even the deepest challenger, you don't want to fight these battles on your own. Jehazel says, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will give you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Take your position, be involved, but you're not going to have to fight this fight. There's personal responsibility in this. Stand firm. There's a resilience, a resolve. Have the responsibility to step in and say, okay, I'm taking my part. I'm going to stand firm with a resilience of heart, and then I'm going to watch 
my deliverer, work on my behalf. And what this really does, as any of you, if you've gone through tremendous trials and tribulations in your life, when you see God work on your behalf, all it can do is just cause the deepest sense of worship within you, where you do fall on your face. You don't care what other people think about you. You don't care if people are looking at you, if people think that you're weird. When you've truly been rescued, all you want to do is just say thank you in whichever way it's possible. And so the king, the king, the leader of Judah, the president of Judah falls on his face, falls on his face and worships God. When we see somebody in authority that is worshiping God, it causes something within us to say, ooh, if they can do it, I can do it. I think that's one of the most beautiful legacies from Queen Elizabeth that she's left us is somebody in extreme, the highest of authority that you can get, whose full and uttermost deepest longing and desire is Jesus and to acknowledge his authority. Take up your position. You will not have to fight this battle. Praise brings about God's power. We had a couple of slides there. I don't know if we ever got to those, but you know what? It's okay. It's all good. So, We're going to practice this this morning. We're here in church. It's a safe space. This is going to be a place where we're actually going to practice praise. So there's seven Hebrew words of praise in the Bible. And these seven Hebrew words are actually commands. They are not um, suggestions. In, In ancient Israel, they would actually read these and hear these words, and they would respond to it because it would be an actual command of praise through Scripture. We don't love commands in our day and age, but we're going to take those these mornings as just a gentle encouragement to step into any kind of physical uncomfort that you may feel in this place. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay if you feel uncomfortable. If, if this is something that is new to you, hey, look, again, the first step to not over, overcoming but to growth itself is to acknowledge and to have full acceptance into that and then have a, have a willing spirit to say, I want to grow. But before we go into this, I want to go back to Father De Charge. This is at the end of his life, and he ended up actually being killed for his faith. And so he wrote a letter before, the, day, the night before his um, execution, and this is what he said. And I just hear the words of this letter. This is a life filled with praise to God manifesting itself through the way that he loves his neighbors, loves his friends, loves his enemies. And just take these words and let it be an encouragement. If anything in the sermon, let this be an encouragement that this is the outcome of, I believe, a humble life that is acknowledging God's presence and his power and praise being on our lips. If it should happen one day, this is the beginning, if it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of terrorism, which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria. I would like my community, my church, my family, to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I ask them to pray for me, for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to be able to associate such a death with the many other deaths that were just as violent, but forgotten through indifference and anonymity. 
My life has no more value than any others, nor any less value. In any case, it has not the innocence of childhood. I have lived long enough to know that I share in the evil which seems, alas, to prevail in the world. Even in that which would strike me blindly, I should like when the time comes to have a clear space which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and all my fellow human beings. And at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. Obviously, my death will justify the opinion of all who dismissed me as naive or idealistic. Let him tell us what he thinks now. But such people should know that my death will satisfy my most burning curiosity. At last, I will be able, if God pleases, to see the children of Islam as he sees them, illuminated in the glory of Christ, sharing in the gift of God's passion and of the spirit whose secret joy will always be to bring forth our common humanity amidst our differences. I give thanks to God for this day, for this life, completely mine, yet completely theirs. To God who wanted it from joy against, and in spite of all odds, in this thank you, which says everything about my life, I include you, my friends, past and present, and those who, who will be here at the side of my mother and my father and my sisters and brothers, thank you a thousandfold. And to you too, my friend of last moment, who will not know what you are doing. Yes, for you too, I wish this thank you, this adieu, whose image is in you also, that we may meet in heaven like happy thieves, if it pleases God, our common Father. Amen. I invite the worship team to come on up. The prayer team, if you want to just prepare, get ready. We're going to enter into a time of response this morning. Like I said in the beginning, this is the moment that everything culminates to. This is the moment, the moment of encounter with God who longs to encounter with you. So we're going to practice paralleling our prayers this morning. For those with kids, your children are great, loving that air conditioning. They're safe. They're going to be ready for you when we're done with this time. And we're going to parallel our prayers to that that we see in the life of King Jehoshaphat in this example. We're going to parallel them with the confidence and with the hope that our lives can be shaped in the image of Jesus more and more. That our resilience towards trials can become rooted not in our ability and our sophistication in our coping mechanisms, but in our dependence on Jesus. And that hopefully that this can be just one of the many moments where we practice Maybe we will have words like Father DeCharge. If we come against persecution here in San Diego at this time, we're probably not going to face physical martyrdom. But if the day ever came, that we would actually be able to bless those that not only persecute, but those that take our lives and say, I hope I see you in heaven. And us like two happy thieves. 
And so we're going to start by repentance. So this is probably going to be most uh, comfortable for you if we stay seated for this portion here. We're going to start with repentance. This is what Jehoshaphat leads his people in, in repenting for the things that they've done. So this is only something you can do. I can't repent for you. I can join you. I can't repent for you. Okay, so we're going to take a few minutes. We're going to focus our minds on God. We're going to come before him with the humility of heart, and we're going to repent. I long to see the things of the Bible renewed in our times. I long to see the Spirit of God move across San Diego, America, and the world for revival to capture the heart of the church. And as Charles Spurgeon says, that salvations would happen as a byproduct of the church being deeper in love with its groom. That's what I long for. If you long for that as well, then I just, I, I encourage you, I extend the invitation to join me in this moment. Let's begin by repentance. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.